The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day, a minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Those were the words of George Orwell. And from the words of tonight's special guest, have we been lied to? During 1850 to 1915, great expositions or world fairs were built worldwide, including Chicago 1893, Paris 1900, St. Louis 1904, and San Francisco 1915. These giant expos, ranging from seven to 1,200 acres, were built in impossible times of less than two years. Then, following the end of the event, they were demolished, destroyed, and thrown into landfills. Each of these fairs were built to resemble ancient Rome, and now I feel that is no accident. But were the buildings of these world expositions new ones being built, or old ones being restored? Part of a civilization that was coexisting with ancient Rome and Greece? Tonight, we inspect the history of the world expositions between 1851 and 1915, and the strange time frame they were associated with. Stay with us. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, EMP Shield, Solar, and EMP Protection, Rebounders, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Howdy Mikoski is the author of several books, including Exposing the Expositions, revised in 2021, Falling for Truth and the Power of Then, Revealing Egypt's Lost Wisdom. He has researched ancient civilizations, historical lies, mysticism, and alchemy for over 20 years. He was lucky enough to have spent time with a Korean monk and several native Indian medicine men. A near-death experience in 2005 changed his view of self and reality. He keeps working to understand the Plato's cave we exist in, as well as its exit. And from Western Norway, I'd like to welcome Howdy Mikoski. Hello, Howdy, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Uh, I'm doing okay. Thanks, Mel. It's very late at night here, but I've got a nice warm tea, so I should be ready to go and awake, and hopefully we have a very interesting conversation. Thank you. For some reason, I expected a, a, an European accent. Are you from America? Uh, Canada, actually. Okay. Okay. Well, you're still from North America, actually. Yeah, for, for now. We'll see how this plays out in the next, you know, few months if that continues. But Well, I guess, I guess you have a better world life in Norway right now as opposed to what we're experiencing in Canada, I guess, right? 
Yeah, most most definitely. Um, yeah, but the the flip side of it is that uh, the population is very obedient, so you don't have to necessarily be as hard handed here because the population just follows along anyway. So it's it's um, there's pluses and minuses to everything, right? Is it the same thing that's happening in Europe? Because I know they have. I don't mean to bring this up. The the whole COVID lockdowns. Uh, it's a different topic we're discussing tonight. But I heard that in in Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, they have removed all restrictions and mandates. Is that correct? That's correct. Everything is – there's nothing now. Zero. That's wonderful. I just hope that other countries just follow suit because this is becoming ridiculous. But I didn't mean to digress with that. Your subject is something that fascinates a lot of us, the expositions, exposing – the expositions. Why did you write such a controversial book? That's a really, I knew when I wrote it, actually, it was going to be like, this is, this is going to stir up some controversy. And so I had to really, I took actually a few, a few moments after I'd written it to say, do I really want to put this out? And I said, yes, I, I, this is just too important. Um, I wrote it because, um, you know, I, I'd written a book 10 years ago or so, 15 years ago on, on ancient Egypt and the ancient Maya and sort of Uncovering the lies, some of the lies of archaeology. Um, and then I'd gone through, I wrote a book um, that came out two or three years ago that was on sort of a, a death experience that I had. And and in, after that had come out, I was in Florence and I was studying the cathedrals and I was I was trying to get a sense of how they worked as energy setters. And, and I, was, I was sort of tracking the energy. And when I got back here home after that trip, I guess I was in a really good energy place. I was in a really good focus point, and I bumped into these these expositions, specifically the the Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893, and I was just pretty much blown away by what I had seen. It, it just the the story of building 700 a thousand acre sites in record time and then blowing them up with dynamite as soon as they were finished just seemed like something I had to investigate, and that's how it got started. You mentioned the cathedral in Florence. I've been there, and I've seen a lot of cathedrals in France and the rest of Europe. And it always makes you wonder, was re were they really built for the purpose of what we see today or not? In fact, I just posted on Facebook this morning. A, a, the, the, the post has hundreds of likes and shares, and it's about we have on the left – I just wish people could see it. If you go to the website, I'm going to add it to the the link to this interview. But on the left, if you can imagine, it's a modern-day circuit board. And on mm. the right, I have a picture of the floor of the Cathedral of Our Lady of Chartres in, in France. And it is exactly the same on the floor. You probably are familiar with this image, are you? Oh, yeah, very much so. So what do you think happened there? And should we change the word from cathedral to maybe Cathedral. Exactly. I can say that that was that became one of the later chapters in the book after I sort of started after I went through and laid out some of the stories of these expositions, some of the the the, the unbelievable history and, and, and breaking it down and going through the very weird things that were going on at these fairs. I tried to put a chapter or so at the end to try to Yeah, give an overview. And one of them was um what that th these cathedrals are a really good example of what these ancient buildings and by ancient I mean I think these buildings are much older than we give them credit for and uh, there's no question they were built as machines um, they were definitely built to store move channel and generate uh, energy and uh, my time in Florence and then 
trips after that, whether it be to Nantes or various other places, I was able to kind of test it. And, and I got a sense of now what the cathedral, how the cathedrals actually operated. And yeah, they were, they were energy centers, balancing centers. Um, they're actually pretty amazing places. Whatever we know of them, think of them as religion that came far after they were, they were done very similar to things like the stone circles that I study all over uh, North America or over uh, Europe, rather here in Norway and Sweden is a lot of them. And same thing, they're thought of as places as Viking graves, but of course the graves came much, much later. These are the same as the original cathedrals, power spots, energy centers, that later on something else got added to them, and now that's what we think they are, but that's not their origin. A lot of these architectural feasts, uh, feats around the world, you see them, and if you're familiar with cymatics, you know, for the folks who are not familiar with it, you put some powder or sand and you hit it with a certain frequency, and you can see these geometrical figures that are just absolutely beautiful. And if you look at these cathedrals, they had that. So I wonder, are you familiar with the 432 hertz and 440 hertz? Do you think there's a correlation here between these buildings and the fact that in the, it was in the 1930s, but it wasn't until the 1950s that the standard international tuning frequency was changed from A432 to A440? There, there must be something to it. Now, of course, I don't know anyone who's actually gone and, and tested the, the tuning frequency. But, of course, what we're talking about specifically with cymatics is, is the rose windows. But not that, and of course, the church itself is making the, the, the patterns as well. But those rose windows, um, you can find those various rose windows in all sorts of cymatic patterns. You can find the exact matches to, in a sense, know – if you think of it – the, the cathedral seems to be generating an energy. At least this is how this is how it felt for me when I was in um, one of the cathedrals in Nantes. Is is it comes into the center into the center point underneath the spire or the you know the ball or the dome, and then what it does is cathedrals have the, have the long sort of central area, but they've also got these two outside uh, sort of side channels or ch- I, there's a name for them. I can't think of it, but it feels like the energy sort of circles around it. It's kind of circling the church is what it does. And my sense is when they play the organ, which of course is representing various frequencies of the body, right? The organs of the body. But when this is played, I think the energy is somehow jumps to the rose window and then is amplified through this cymatic pattern, whatever they've chosen as. So the energy becomes a specific cymatic wave that goes out into the rest of the city. It's when you start to see it in those terms, they become beautiful uh, monuments. And uh, I, don't, I don't want to call them machines because they're, they're, they're greater than a machine. They are literally something energetically linked to the earth and the sky and to humans. I am told that after the tuning frequency was changed by the, uh, the, the Philharmonic, whatever association did this around the world, and I believe this came all the way from uh, Goebbels and the Nazis because they didn't want people to be at peace because 432 is the, the, the frequency that we need in order to be at peace and, and, and harmony. But when it comes to these cathedrals, I am told that everywhere else, the tuning frequency changed to 440, but it was left intact in churches and the organs so that when people go to the Christian church, they feel a religious experience when in fact, this is the way it was for everywhere else. That's an interesting comment. I mean, until you've mentioned this, I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't thought of checking the tune, you might say, the tuning quality of the, of the organs, of the churches, of everything else. Uh, It's a really good point. 
And of course, if we still had the World's Fair buildings, I would be very curious to see. I guarantee they were they were generating a frequency. I'm pretty much guaranteeing it would be it would be a harmonic. If not if not 432, it's at least it's at least making one of the solfaggio numbers, right? So, um, and if you if you've got a number of buildings each creating a different solfaggio, then you're creating or just just in the architecture itself. You don't have to do anything else. You've created harmony just by what you built. Exactly. Let's go with the Expos now. When I look at these pictures, let's begin with Chicago, 1893. This image, which is the one that we're using, used that on, on the cover of your book, I'm using it mm. for the promotional of this, is this interview. You see this and you think you are in the middle of the Roman Empire. How is it that so many people say this was built in two years and it was demolished immediately after? It makes absolutely no sense. No, and, and again, when I first started, I thought I was just going to be writing a book on the Chicago Exposition. It didn't take me long until I realized these were happening all over the world, right? Not just in the United States; they were happening. They were happening as well in Milan, in Paris, in London, in the Philippines, in South America, and basically, if you were anywhere in the world at this time period, from about 1870 to to 1910, you had a World's Fair somewhere, and every single one is supposed to be building on a massive scale, building. Not even necessarily – okay, Chicago is seven – let's take Chicago. Like you say, 700 acres. That's 2.8 square kilometers. And I've suggested in the book that just to give you a mental picture because that's just a number in your head, put two so – take a map in your in your city you live in and mark out 2.8 square kilometers and then go walk it. Like just literally walk 2.8 square kilometers then realize in 1891 they're supposed to have spent two years building massive structures – one of which the manufacturer's building could house 300,000 people onto what you just walked. And that will give you more of the scale of what you're talking about of really what's an impossible feat of building. Now, the, the, the standard story, right, the historical narrative that, that, I, that I've been working to attack with the book and, and that was started by some really good researchers on YouTube, people like John Levy and uh, Martin and a few others, they had done some really good work years ago and I just kind of took that in the next level and then and, and wrote it as a book. But the standard story is that the reason these things were built so quickly is A, they were built out of a material called staff, which is a plaster and a wood combination. You know, very simplistic, cheap building materials. And two, that the workmen of a hundred or 120 years ago had greater skill and craftsmanship than anyone had building today. So this is the standard story that we are given. Uh, but <clears throat> when we start to break that down, you look at something like the Buffalo Electric Tower in 1901, which is 325 feet high, had elevators in the middle of it that you could ride up and go to the top and look out over the Buffalo Exposition. You're going to build that out of plaster and wood <laughs> and likely have the whole thing collapse as soon as the first, ele first two elevators takes people to the roof? Of course not. You have to build something like that out of as a massive structure. So once you start seeing the buildings and recognizing that there's elevators and people on the roof and, and, you know, the plaster and wood story starts to fall apart quickly. It fell apart on the other side. Um, you asked me why, how I wrote, really wrote the book. And I, for me, it was more just a, a curiosity until I had gone and met with a um, building contractor that I know here in Norway. And when I showed him the images and I asked him, could you build this for me today? Unlimited budget. 
uh, modern machinery could you build the, the Columbian Exposition? And he said, yeah, I could build it. I said, how long is it going to take you? He said, well, it's going to take me two years just for the planning. You've got really intricate work here. You've got waterways. You've got lakes. You've got lagoons. You've got roads. You've got, you know, never mind the building. So two years to plan it. Then it's going to be two years we're going to need to do all the landscaping to get the water systems right, to get to get all the transportation systems right, and then give me about 10 or 12 years and we can get the buildings up. So I said, like, 15 years with modern machines, modern buildings, modern modern everything. He said, yeah. And when I told him, they, they say this took two years in 1891, he, his, his only response was, no, not possible. And that's when I realized we really got something here. That's incredible. And, yeah, a lot of people, when you post a lot of these images and, and explanations on the Internet, they start saying, oh, that was just, you know, I know my city. They're telling me that it's plaster. But it makes absolutely no sense. What would they even make it look the way it is with plaster? And could they hold so many people with elevators when it's made of plaster? Exactly. Now, I don't doubt that there are buildings at these fairs made of plaster. I mean, I, I, I mean, we're looking at we're looking at two things. Once you start recognizing that the two-year story is impossible, and we can, if you want, we can go into that part of it as the interview goes on and really discuss why the two-year building project specifically just make doesn't hold water, but. When you see that the, the, we have photographs of all of these events, I don't believe any of the photographs are, you know, faked in any way, shape, or form. These are all original photographs from all over the world, fair after fair after fair. So we had expositions, guaranteed. The question is either A, did they have a technology that they're not supposed to have that we don't know about, almost like a, a 3D printing or some kind of technology that could, could put really strong structures up really quickly? Or two that had to, it has to mean that the most a lot of the buildings were already there, uh, a part of an ancient civilization that were just cleaned up, refurbished, repainted, which is something you could do in a two or three year time frame. If you just have to paint buildings, that's really different than having to actually construct them. Not only that, but when you look at that time of of our history, the United States, South America, especially Brazil, that has some of these uh, monuments as well. I don't think that our governments were as, as um, what's the word I want to use? I don't want to say rich, but they were not as wealthy as they are maybe today. So why would they build so many of these buildings to just destroy them later? It just makes absolutely no sense to me. And even more so when you consider that actually the people funding them is not really the government. It is the uh, – what you would call the, the, the robber barons, right? right? The, the railroad and the steel barons in the U.S. They're the ones who are, who are fronting the bill for this and all of them lost money, big amounts of money. Like the, uh, the, the, the fair in Philadelphia, which was the first huge one in the U.S., I think it lost $4 million. Like that's a massive amount of money for 1876 and yet they thought this is a good idea. We're going to do this again and again and again and they all kept losing money. And one of the things we know about the rich, one of the reasons the rich get rich is because they don't lose money. They don't waste money. Everything they do is earning them money. So why do you want to keep having massive events like this that lose you money and give you no assets when you're at, when you're finished with it? I mean, the other thing that's so strange is, of course, every one of these cities has gone through some sort of city fire, which is another strange historical right. Uh, explanation on top of it. But if you take Chicago, well, Chicago is supposed to have a whole lot of the city burned down in 1871. So it needs buildings. Like you need, you, you need, you need new structures. So why would you build something up to destroy it? San Francisco, another example, is supposed to be completely destroyed from the earthquake in 1906. But let's start building these expositions and then destroy the buildings when we're done. When they need to build buildings, why don't you just 
multi-purpose. You build a building for the fair, and then it stays later on and becomes something else. That would. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.